All right, welcome back to our painless remodeling course. Let's get on to the next section here, and it's all about costs and budgets. This lesson, I want to talk to you guys about understanding the difference between, well, getting a grasp on what you think things are going to cost and what they actually cost, because sometimes that's a big uh, hurdle or issue when we're talking about going ahead with a remodel project. Uh, I want to talk to you about maybe considering alternatives and options to items you're installing. Uh, some people might want to donate their time and energy towards a project to help save money. We call that sweat equity. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And I want to make sure I'm reinforcing the point that you you got to have a contingency account somewhere to put aside some money that's part of your whole budget, but you kind of need to be blind to it until you really, really need it. And then I want to bring your attention to sustainable products. Uh, you may or may not be on that bandwagon, but sometimes when you buy a product, its sustainability is going to help you in the long run, regardless of your beliefs or philosophies. It's just a better way to run your house, basically. So let's get uh, used to some terms here in this section. We're talking uh, about products and materials that you have to bring onto the project or your contractors have to bring onto the project. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with the two terms here, wholesale versus retail, as you and I, as general Joe public, Joe and Jane public, go out to a store, say we're going to a, a big box store to buy <clears throat> a new pair of pants. What we buy those pants for is retail, right? We walk into that store, that store has staff, employees, fixtures, you know, lighting bill, etc., they have to cover their costs, right? As well as make a little bit of markup on the products that they sell. So there's a there's a business there that's trying to sell goods to us as a consumer. Now, one tier below that or above that, however you want to look at the pyramid, is the wholesaler, the people that get products from manufacturers for a cost, sell it to retailers for a cost, and then the retailers market up to us the consumer, Joe and Jane public. So oftentimes you'll hear the terms wholesale prices or come on down wholesale open to the public, stuff like that. Just be aware that uh, oftentimes your contractor is shopping in a different outlet than you're seeing as a consumer. We might go down to Home Depot or Lowe's or some other store, you know, some a true value hardware store, something to pick up, whatever, a can of paint. They might be going to a paint wholesaler where the, the paint product to them is cheaper. They're getting a more professional level service as well as other perks along with that. But you have to be a licensed uh, either contractor or product installer, etc. oftentimes to shop at these wholesale outlets. But that's the benefit. There's no, to me, there's no uh, pro or con to wholesale versus retail or you trying to shop wholesale. There's no, I would almost rather pay the person that's installing it <clears throat> to go buy it where they want to buy it because they're used to the product, they're used to the quality, they're used to the service, the warranty issues, etc. When we bring stuff to the site uh, as a product to install, 
as a remodeling client, uh, oftentimes you might get reluctance uh, from contractors about that scenario because they, they, they want to install their product. Uh, so just keep that, those two terms in your head <clears throat> when we're talking about looking at and procuring products for the project. Uh, here's another one. Sorry to dwell on that one too long. I just want to make sure you kind of grasp that concept of wholesale versus retail. All right, next one, like kind. Uh, if you haven't heard the term, there might be other terms elsewhere, but this is the one I'm used to. And you'll sometimes, if you're reading a set of plans in detail, you'll see this term because it'll say install such and such a fixture or like kind or industry standard or something to that effect. And the reason they do that on plans is because they may or may not want to name a specific manufacturer or model number or product number because that might not be available at the time of the build. But they want to make sure that the new product that is installed has the same characteristics as what they've specified. So you will see this often. And I'm using it here in terms of your budget and cost uh, thinking so that when you're out there shopping for a sink that you really like or a faucet or a shower head and you go, wow, I really like that styling, but it's X amount of dollars and that's way more than I wanted to spend. If you do a little bit of research, and I'll show you a little bit later in the, in the module here, uh, you're going to find very similar, if not identical products that are, to me, like kind. It might not be the same manufacturer. It might not have the same warranty. It might not have the same quality to it. But from an aesthetics point of view, which might be okay in some instances, uh, a like-kind product might be a way to save money on your budget, way to reduce cost. And then we talked about sweat equity a little bit, but let's just kind of define it here. Um, sweat equity is when the clients donate their time and energy and whatever expertise they may have to a project to help a, reduce cost, B, maybe to reduce time, because uh, they're, they're related but separate issues, um, but also to, to be more involved in the project. And I've worked with clients who love doing this and others that just want to go to work and come home and everything's swept up and they can go about their evening with their family. Um, and then there's contractors, too, that will tolerate this, will be accepting of this strategy, and others that will say, no way, I don't allow that. I have too much stuff going on. There's too many, whatever, trades involved or whatever. Unless you can work out some little detail where you agree to sweep up the interior, uh, you know, dust clean at the end of the day so that their crews can just work right up into the clock uh, and then kind of put their tool belt in the truck and then they need to drive away. That's one way to help reduce costs, but some contractors, again, might not allow that. But it is a way to kind of gain some uh, camaraderie with the team, keeps you connected with the project, uh, etc. So you just have to kind of play each project uh, you know, independently. Some contractors are going to be open to it, others are not. Uh, contingency reserves... Contingency, just kind of by itself, just in case of emergency, kind of, you know, in case you need it type of thing. And the reserves are just an account or it could be an envelope full of money. It doesn't matter. As long as you set it aside, 
so that you're kind of blind to it. You know that it's there in case of emergencies, but you really don't want to tap into it in uh, anything other than that, whether it's a change in the scope of work or you, a water pipe burst or you found something that you got to correct to comply with current code, et cetera. All those could pop up, especially in a remodel scenario. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, and we'll talk about sustainable products and what that means just kind of in a nutshell. Any product can be made sustainably for the most part, depending upon its uh, material makeup. Um, but sustainable could be all sorts of things. Is it, is it water saving? Is it energy saving? Is it, uh, did it come from a very short distance versus a very long distance? Was it made with a material that's rapidly renewable? Was it made from a material that's a byproduct from another process that would otherwise go to a landfill? There's many ways to kind of call a product sustainable, and that's kind of what I wanted to allude you to. It's not, this is a sustainable product and it does all these things. You know, it might not do everything. It might be local, but it might be, you know, made of bad stuff or stuff that's not renewable or, you know, et cetera. So there's, there's some weighing on your part of what amount of sustainability you want in your product and what you're willing to just kind of ignore and just go about the project, you know. So I just want to kind of bring your attention to that. That's a, kind of a touchy uh, category for me. I really support sustainability in green building, but I also know that some of it's a lot of fluff. And, and I've seen it, and I admit that. All right, the last one, bids, estimates, and proposals. Lots of people just use these interchangeably, and they are not. Um, and I might even have a different definition than the next contractor down the street. But I will give you my point of view, what these are and what they mean when we get a little bit further into this section. All right. So to kick things off, let's just talk where this whole section is about your budget, the budget with which you're going to pay for the project you're considering. There are many things that affect uh, the costs of your project and therefore that would establish the budget right so let's say you're doing an addition so you need the cost of whatever the the foundation the framing the walls you know all there's an assortment of things that you're going to have to have on your list to accomplish that end goal which is the addition now there's many things that are going to affect that cost and it's going to change depending upon where you're standing ironically we talked about this a little bit earlier, but wholesale versus retail um, are costs, right? You can say, okay, what, what are the costs? Well, you want wholesale or retail costs? It might be a dollar retail, but it might be 50 cents wholesale. That doesn't mean you always get that price, by the way. Like I said earlier, sometimes you're, you're able to take advantage of those prices, but other times only your contractors have that capability, and they bring that savings with them and they bring a little profitability to them with that scenario but it's also a, a better approach for everybody in my opinion all right needs versus wants um, this is a big one that uh, contractors cannot control they can coach you and guide you and say hey I, I know you really want that gold-plated toilet seat but uh, really all you need is a toilet seat for right now 
And if you want to shave your budget or shave costs to get more out of your project, to get more value out of your project, you might want to really heavily weigh these two columns. And when you're thinking about buying anything, especially finishes, uh, start trying to isolate them into these two columns, needs versus wants. And I know that's tricky, and it's sometimes... And I only bring it up because it really can skew the, your budget. If you're just trying to do a remodel of your kitchen, let's say, and you really want to modernize it, say it's 30 years old and you just want to bring it up to par or bring it up to the modern styling or trend, uh, you can get really carried away in this needs versus wants. You might want, you know, the the inboard coffee maker in the wall coffee maker and the, and the drawer fridge and the double dishwasher and the built-in whatever those are all kind of wants, but all you really need is a refrigerator or a cooking service. You know what I'm saying? So you have to be uh, cognizant of these two columns. Location is a big one. And I didn't really grasp that until I started moving around. You know, I was a contractor for a long time up in the Bay Area and San Francisco area. And, uh, I thought I was high cost, but I was the same cost as all my other peers. All, every contractor down the street was relatively uh, in the same price point. And then when you leave, or you, you go inland or you go to a different state or you go to a different region, uh, that might all change. And it's not because the quality of the skill set went down per, you know, per se, but it's just because of the cost of living in that area. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me for a while, but you have to understand that every contractor that comes onto your site to do a portion of the work for their portion of the work, they typically have a crew, right? Whether it's two guys or 20 guys, depending upon the trade, those people have to come to your site from somewhere. So typically contractors like to stay localized, like I work this region, I have a 20-mile radius or a 50 or a 100, whatever their definition is, and they don't expect their crews to make that any farther of a drive either. So depending upon where your project is, whether it's inner city or up in the mountains, costs can be different. So I just want to bring that to your attention. It has nothing to do with oh, the guy down the city is more expensive, so he must be better. That's not necessarily the reason. I'm just saying that location has a lot to do with what a contractor will charge, could charge, would charge, you know, wherever he's at, she's at. Uh, location has a lot to do with pricing. Uh, project complexity uh, can affect the cost of your project uh, very quickly. If it's something that's not been done before or not regularly or not uh, common in your neck of the woods, in your vicinity, uh, you might have trouble finding a contractor that would install it blindly. And so then you might want to bring in a professional. Well, with that, maybe that professional has to drive farther or travel farther or, or fly in from out of state. I mean, I've seen projects where the plasterers were flew in from Japan to do walls in this house. And it's like, whoa, sure, great finish, nice, beautiful work, but just think about uh, the cost of that and the complexity of that and, and what that does. You know, the specialty items are very much a part of 
destroying budgets, killing budgets. So keep that in mind. Uh, delivery time, kind of related to product availability, right? Where things are at. If you can go buy all your plumbing fixtures, all your lighting fixtures locally, and you're not waiting for it to arrive from Italy or wherever, um, that's a good thing. It's going to keep your schedule under control. You're going to get your product in front of you quicker, and there's not going to be any question about the installations, etc. So delivery of a product also affects the cost or the budget of your project. And then we talked about this a little bit with complexity, but the specialist versus the generalist. Um, I am a general contractor. I have been for a long, long time. I never got any of my any of the specialty licenses that you're able to get in California. Um, didn't really need to. I would rather give that work to a tradesperson who specializes in that. So I would always sub out my plumbing and electrical. Well, my electrical is done in-house, but unless it got really big. But all the other trades, unless it was carpentry, were all basically subbed out. So I was considered a generalist, a general contractor. But I was controlling the troops. That's my duty as the con as the general to control the troops, control the momentum of the project, control the success of the project. Whereas the people under me or beside me that I would hire, bring on the site, were specialists. You know, I might have, I've even hired specialist plumbers who weren't just plumbers, but he was the guy that could, you know, drill a hole through a boulder and put a faucet at the end of it. All that complexity was part of his specialty. So with those tiers or levels of specialty, um, you probably are going to increase costs. So the more mainstream you can keep your projects, the more manageable the budget might be. The more out of that mainstream you go, the more you probably have to bring in specialists, which obviously increase costs. Um, this is a big one. It's not for seasoned remodelers. They know the difference. But for new people that are just, maybe they bought a home a couple of years ago and they're ready to remodel it um, because it's already, you know, whatever, 50 years old. But they've never been through a remodel. They don't know the process, so they don't know a lot of people that have been through the process. So they have no baseline. So what happens is you have this weird intersection between reality and fantasy. And, and I'm not trying to be uh, criti criticizing this group, because it could be any age group. We, I've seen it all the time. Um, but they'll see, let's say, <clears throat> they'll be walking the aisles of Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever, and they'll, they'll see whatever, a beautiful front door in a frame right just kind of sitting there in the door department and they'll see it's seven hundred dollars great new front door seven hundred dollars what hundred dollars a couple hundred dollars labor under a thousand dollars right in their head that's their fantasy or that's their estimate in their head of what that door would cost to get put in the reality is uh you have the cost of the door, right? You have the cost of getting the door to the site, whether the contractor has to pick that up or have it delivered. There's some time and cost there, probably. The installer has to have a helper because most door installers do, especially on front door units that are you know larger, heavier, etc. 
They have to go out and prep. You know, there's all kinds of steps involved with getting this door installed. And it might be more than the $1,000 fantasy estimate that the homeowner or the potential remodeler had in their head. What I just want to encourage you to do, if you're new to this, which all of you are, otherwise you wouldn't be in this course, uh, is to don't pay too much attention to the cost of a product as you're seeing it in a store or on a shelf. Wait until you talk to someone who's actually going to put it in, install it, knows the reality of it, knows the ins and outs of putting it in, because oftentimes it might look easy, might look simple, but it's not. So I just encourage you to uh, come down out of the clouds a little bit, you know, sometimes. And especially if you're trying to really fine-tune your budget, you need to be really careful about the fantasy estimate that you have in your head versus reality. Okay, let's get to the next one. Alternatives versus options. Um, if you have uh, multiple fixtures or lighting products or appliances going in, cabinetry, knobs, you know, any kind of hardware, trims, moldings, paints, finishes, tile products, uh, any of these things have a, a spectrum of both quality and um, options and color choices, etc. Some are more expensive than others, depending upon several things, right? What's, what's hot and trendy is usually more expensive. Uh, what's, what's heavier and built for longevity is usually more expensive. What's more efficient is usually more expensive. Uh, in the short term, it might be less expensive in the long term. Um, but all I'm saying that every product out there has an alternative or option to it. And it's going to be up to you to kind of weigh these things as you start picking out product or your designer or working with your designer to pick out product. Uh, but the, the sooner you can get to having choice B, C, and D for these, fi these finished materials, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, the easier it's going to be to get through the tunnel more successfully. I'm trying to help you reduce the pain. And this is one of the pain points that I've seen is people are so caught up in that one kitchen faucet and they won't let it go. And so it just holds up everybody, it holds up the schedule. You know, maybe it got damaged in shipping, they had to get another one, etc. So if you don't have alternatives and options, it is going to be hard to stay on schedule. It's going to be hard to stay in your budget. Okay. The flip side of that is, okay, let's say I do have option B, C, and D. Well, maybe C and D aren't as great, but they look okay. But just be aware that usually choice C and D might have a little bit of uh, less quality went into it when they built that product, right? Or, or it's going to be hard to find parts or someone to service it. I've seen a lot of people do this with uh, or have this issue with cooktops. They'll buy a cooktop from, you know, out of the country, and then they have somebody try to service it, and they're like, I've never seen this thing before, and they have an issue with servicing it. So good points, bad points, right? But at least have some kind of list so you have uh, somewhere to go, some other choice that you can get to quickly without holding up the momentum of the project. 
this really hurts when you don't have uh, an alternative or an option pre-selected. All right, here's one example I just wanted to quickly show you about this, this topic. Let's say I'm out there hunting for a bathroom faucet for, let's say I have a, a house with three bathrooms in it, and one of them is just a downstairs half bath, hall bath, but I still want it to look nice. It's not going to be used every day, but I want it to match the other stuff I have going in the house, right? So I'm looking at this one. Nice modern styling, sleek. It's got its what do they call it, matte black. Uh, it's coming in at 110, and the Kingston is a pretty common brand if if you know anything about plumbing products. It's not way up there, but it's 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 known. It's a known brand, so it's coming in at 110 bucks, right? You know, here's a bigger shot of it. Nothing much to it. Uh, obviously, you can get these other finishes, but I'm not sure if that's still at 110. But let's stick with the matte black. So 110 bucks for a faucet for bathroom number three. Let's go shopping. Oh, what's this one? $25. Same type of look. Same, you know, downslope of the, the faucet itself. Same single hole assembly. I could always take off that base plate. It's a matte black. Uh, if I did a little research, hopefully it's got the same GPM rate, gallons per minute. And to me, it looks exactly the same. So 25 versus 110. Wave to save costs, right? Wave to, ways to save uh, a little bit of my budget for something else that's maybe more important or that's buried in the wall or I want a more efficient furnace or better lighting, whatever. If I can reduce costs here, I can apply it over here and not increase my budget. So every item has that available to you. So just keep that in mind when you're out there uh, looking at lighting fixtures especially. Lighting fixtures and plumbing fixtures are notorious for having same look, lower price, and another option. All right. Next category here is sweat equity. Some people they're, get excited about this, but some people are like, there's no way I'm getting, you know, whatever, dusty, sweaty, sawdust, you know, whatever. Um, but it is a way to help reduce costs. I've worked with several projects on several projects where the it was usually the lady of the house because she was home and the kids were at school and dad was at work. Uh, but sometimes it was both of them or they would do it together when he came home and they would do the cleanup at the end of the day. They would both do it. But it was a way for them to stay connected to the project. They saw the progress from day one. You know, it's 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 must be interesting, and it has been, I've seen it in my own home, but when you see a room go away and then kind of get reborn, right, you, you strip it down to the studs, you clean it all out, you vacuum it all out, and it looks like it's just been built, and then you're kind of rebuilding it. So it's a way to see it grow up, basically. You're watching it kind of come out of the ground and watching the whole progress. Uh, it's a little, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's a way for them to engage with the team. You know, obviously these, these people that do this are very injected into the project. So they get to know the team, not just the general contractors team, but also the subcontractors and uh, engage with them and have lunch with them out under the tree, et cetera. So it's, it's a really cool thing to see when it, ha when it does happen. Uh, and it also, it not only, I mean, if you can build it into some kind of number with the 
contractor, or you're trying to help save costs, we need to agree on what is that cost savings. Get that out of the way. You have to determine what you're going to do for how much savings, then close that door, and then just know that every time you do this, every day that you're the one that's doing the cleanup or or grouting the tile or you know whatever you agree that you both agree that you can do, uh, the more work can be done by others in a day. So actually you're reducing time in the schedule, you're increasing productivity, you're increasing camaraderie in the success of the team. So there's layers and layers of benefit here. Um, so it's a good thing to do. Now just hold that thought because the other side of that is you got to do it every day because if you don't, now you're screwing up everybody's expectations. If you miss a day of cleanup or if you didn't grout the tile before whatever, you know, the, the trim plumber comes, or, you know, there's all kinds of things that could be hinged upon the work that you've agreed to do. So it behooves you to say, okay, if I'm going to contribute my sweat equity, I promise I will, cannot call in sick. I'll be there every day. Uh, if it There'll probably be a, a line item, at least I would as the contractor. If you do not show up and I have to have my guys do it, this is the cost of that day. Because they have to figure that into their costs on their front-end paperwork, right? It's not only work done, but the cleanup involved, etc. So this is really a, a, a balancing act of contribution and then making sure you stay true to what you promise you say you do. Uh, and I've seen this both ways this time and energy away from family you know obviously uh you could make it a family thing obviously if it's safe right i would i don't know if i'd want to subject uh, small children to dusty cleanup even with a mask on um but there's other things they could do right they could pick up stuff or you know carefully give them a little set of gloves etc so it's a cool way to show them what work is what what con contributing to the household is so it's a it's a good way to build family unit priorities and, and values. But at the same time, you have to be very cognizant of, hey, if I got to go do the sweep cleanup, I might not have time to prepare dinner for the family. So there's that kind of uh, weighing of your time. But you have to make sure that you're allowing for both and, and have fun with it with the family. I've seen it work very successfully with, with kids. Obviously, this is an extreme picture, but I have started projects and this was day one it's like okay someone's expected to remove all this but it could have been them right they could have done it and probably saved a few thousand dollars i would say just looking at that first picture so it's not something you want to shy away from necessarily but know that it's it's hard work there's cuts and bruises there's you know all kinds of things can happen but the, the flip side of it is all those benefits we just talked about. But I just want to make sure that you're aware it's not all <laughs> glitz and glamour. It's sweat. It's working your butt off, basically. But that's, that sweat is equal to dollar signs. All right. Next topic is contingency reserves or money set aside for those unknowns that are going to happen, not if, but when they will happen. I've seen it on every single project I've been on been doing this for many years uh, and some are really severe most aren't most are just whoops or well I didn't see that one coming or what have you um, 
but just know that if you don't have the reserve set aside, uh, you're not going to be able to complete your project like you wanted to, perhaps, because now you got to pull money out of the whole budget to pay for this broken pipe or this wall that never got insulated properly or you know, whatever, fill in the blank. It's for the unknowns, not stuff that you anticipate. It's for the stuff that you don't anticipate. So what I want to encourage you to do is, you know, step one is to do this, right? Is to kind of do your due diligence. It's kind of like when we were told as kids, hey, save your money, right? And this is kind of that kind of thing. It's like it's, it's difficult to hear and grasp and honor and do. But at the same time, if you don't, uh, you you know you won't know you're sorry about it until the end. That's that's the hard part. I can't tell you how important it is because it's, there's no way to show you the damage until you actually face it yourself. But what I've seen too is they do great at setting aside. Let's say they have a hundred thousand dollar budget. They pull out fifteen and they just push it off to the side and put that in a different account or in a drawer or what have you. And then they just kind of after a month of the remodel, they're plugging along, the, you know, the drywall's going up, the walls are getting primed, and they start thinking about, hmm, I wonder if we should have put in that other bigger cabinet or that let's change it to granite countertops instead of the tile or, you know, because they, they see that sparkly $15,000 sitting over there and they think they're going to tap into it. They're so close to the end uh, that it wouldn't break the budget. And I just caution you to make sure that you refrain from that thinking as long as you can. I know it's tricky and, and it's hard to do because it's just sitting there not being used. Uh, but wait till the end. You know, wait to, till it's all the last light bulb is screwed in, etc. before you tap into that if it hasn't been spent already. And chances are it's already been spent. Um, if, it's a, if it's a complex project or a project with multiple layers to it, multiple rooms or trades or or products or finishes, uh, you might want to bump up the percentage of that contingency reserve because I'm just basing 15% on 100K generally. If it was something super complicated, like say that 100K was just for this really small bathroom, but that really small bathroom had super specialty items in it. Well, I might pull 30K out of that 100K just to make sure that I'm covered because of the unknowns of the unknown, right? So complexity has a lot to do with the percentage of the amount of that should be held back. Um, so if you already kind of have built your budget and you, and you forgot to pull out this contingency, uh, do it right away because you, you don't want to go shopping for product until you have this money set aside. So you, that hundred K is no longer in your head. Now it's 75 K or, or whatever, right? Uh, 85k sorry if i'm just pulling out 15k for a reserve and that's that's light in my opinion but anyway let's just say it's 15k out of the 100 so now your 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 mantra should be i have 85 i have 85 i have 85 i have 85 don't get rid of that 100 in your head because you'll you'll spend it in your head and then you'll spend it in real life so set it aside make sure you understand can't touch it don't use it for anything other than the, the oops or the emergency or the oops, they're out of that product. We got to close it in. We need it today. Let's put in this other thing. That's those are those situations that it has to happen. All right. <clears throat> Sustainable 
product choices um, is an interesting topic. Uh, not all not all people think about well, what do you mean by a sustainable building product or or a sustainable product. And I touched about it a little bit earlier, but it all has to do with um, in in the case of a remodel. I'm talking about when you decide to build above code. And when I say that, I'm more often referring to, especially when I talk about sustainable products, it's products that will either save you money uh, via energy use or water use or some kind of use, uh, or it'll make you more comfortable in your own home, which is should be the goal of every home being built. Uh, it won't harm the people within the home. It won't harm the occupant. And it's built with uh, the the recognition that they have to be mindful of where products are coming from, what products they're using within the device or the product, and how those products are attained, where, how they were mined or produced, etc. So there's different levels of sustainability in a product. But when I'm talking about building above code, I'm typically talking about uh, increasing whatever the minimum code requirement is. And when I say minimum code, every state, every city, every municipality has a baseline code that you have to build. So you can't build a, a whole track of homes that are just tents, right, with no plumbing, no electricity. That is not legal. You have to have a certain amount of square footage, certain amount of window areas, certain amount of door openings, you have to furnace, you have to heat the place, has to protect it from the elements, etc. There's all kinds of things built into the code, right? Many code books. All I'm saying is if if the code says insulate this wall to they do it in R value. So this the smaller the number, the 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 more heat is gonna get through that wall, right? So an R three wall wouldn't be as good as an R eleven wall, let's say. You know, depending upon the product that you put in it, and our number is what it is, how good it shields you from the heat or cold outside, right, versus inside. I would suggest to you, if code says built to R13, pump it up. Go to the next one up, R19 or R whatever. Even if that's what code says, and some people would say, well, that doesn't make sense from an energy modeling standpoint because that that area that geography where you're at is doesn't need that to maintain a certain temperature inside versus outside doesn't need that higher r value but i would argue that that's based on today's fuel prices today's climate that whether you believe it or not i think is changing um you know all kinds of things affect what that notion is built upon so plus you're going to get more comfort internally if you have a higher R value. Think about a beer inside of a, a cooler you're taking out to the beach, right? The thicker, better built that cooler is, the longer that beer is going to stay cold, right? And the, the cheap one that you buy and it's got you know really thin walls, the beer gets warmer quicker because the insulative, the R value of the wall of that cooler is not as good as it could have been. That's why you when you buy a very expensive cooler, they're paying a, a lot of attention to the thermal value of the walls of the cooler. This is what I'm talking about here. Sustainable, to me, is not only the chemical makeup of the product materials that it's built with, but also what it's doing or helping to, to 
the occupant to enjoy their living space, right? I, I love certain types of heating systems. I love certain plumbing fixtures, etc. Even though they're above code, I would still push them because it'll serve you better. Uh, products with a lower carbon footprint, and that's a big topic to discuss, and I'm not going to dwell on it here, but the carbon footprint is kind of what everything I just said. Everything that is put into the production of a product, you know, you could hold up a remote control for your TV and say, okay, the plastic came from halfway around the world, the electronics came from over there, the the uh, the metals that are in it had to be mined from over there. So there's this really small device in your hand that could have been made with products from every direction on the globe. That's not a very carbon neutral product because lots of expended energy had to be used just to get all those products together at the plant to make the product. So a more, a smaller carbon footprint product would have stuff made right there, closer, materials are there, workers are there, energy is there. So the, the more you can save on production time, energy use, labor time, uh, the, you know, the, the mining of anything, the, the, the cultivation of anything uh, helps reduce the, the carbon footprint of that product. And some companies are proud to boast about their lower carbon footprint. And some, you know, they just business as usual. But know that this is becoming more and more a topic of interest. Uh, even builders are trying to make carbon neutral buildings, which is tricky and hard. And, and how do you measure it, etc. So just, just keep that in mind. Carbon footprint is kind of a new lingo term that you're going to have to get used to. Uh, the product itself is, how is it made? Where, what is it made from? Uh, where did it get its materials? I, there's some glass countertops we used to use all the time because it used uh, parts of glass that was, you know, from the recycle plant. But it was beautiful to see because of the multicolor and it was, it included a product that had already been produced, right? So you're, you're recycling it, you're reusing that product or that material in a new and practical way. That's, that's what I love to see when I see a recycled or a, a reused product or a product that's it's got a new life. From a builder's standpoint, I don't know if the builder uh, that you're hiring does this, but we used to use the form boards for our foundation pours for other parts of the build. So we were wasting no lumber. We didn't do it because we were trying to be green builders or be sustainable in any way. We just did as, why would we throw that away? Even though it's, it was used once to hold up concrete until it's set, once you remove that, I can go use that for blocking between my floor joists or up in my, my roof assembly or elsewhere for something, some other purpose. There's no need to throw that away. So that's another thing we can kind of track uh, as things are getting built is the waste. Uh, VOCs is a big one, volatile organic compounds that we're on the lookout for when we're looking at paints, finishes, cleaners, uh, strippers, you know, paint strippers or solvents, uh, anything that comes in a bottle or a jar or a tube. 
I would check the content. Most, and this was a challenge 10, 15 years ago when we're trying to push low VOC paint to, to achieve a green uh, built label. Um, and there was only like two or three brands that even had a low VOC paint at the time. But now you have zero VOC paints readily available. So there's no reason to not get a zero VOC paint. And the easiest way to tell if whatever you're buying has VOCs in it is to smell it. Everybody says, oh, that new car smell, or oh, doesn't this room smell great, that new paint smell. Those are VOCs. They're off-gassing. It's kind of that uh, alluring smell that we had as, as kids growing up, but not knowing the danger it was trying to tell our bodies is like, get out, get away from the space. And, our, and that's literally the, what the scientists are telling us is you need to stay away from VOCs in general. All right. Uh, I touched upon this, and I can't stress this enough, is uh, appliances, maybe less so, depending upon which appliances you're talking about. But when I say appliances, I could be referring to the water heater or the furnace, as well as the, the range and the refrigerator and the dishwasher which can all be swapped out later. What I'm referring to here is uh, pieces of equipment that are going to serve the household for years and years and years to come and have to be relied upon to work properly and work efficiently. That's your furnace, air conditioner. Sometimes there are two pieces of equipment, your ventilation systems, and your water heating system. There's different ways to do all of those things, different energy-efficient methodologies, and I'll talk about that probably in a different course because it's just too much to do here, but I'm just telling you, if I had the choice of selecting a 72% efficient water heater in my new remodel versus a 96% water heater, I'm going to go with the 96%. Even though it's going to cost double, sometimes three three times the cost, uh, I'm putting it in. Uh, that's that's me. That's not everybody. Some people will pick the middle one or something in between, but I'm just saying that to me it's more valuable for something that's going to serve my needs for years and years to come. I want its operating costs to be manageable too, and the only way to do that is to buy very efficient equipment. Plus it's it's great for the environment. It's great for the community, et cetera, and it teaches your family a lesson too about how to do your part and and get efficient in your own abode so that collectively we can help reduce our energy consumption because it's way too high uh, as a as a nation all right some people have a problem with uh all of those rules right of the rules of the regulations and uh how they impose what we have to put in, right? The, the efficient lighting and the efficiency of a furnace or a water heater built into the building codes. A lot of builders that I've worked with, especially on the production side, they do it reluctantly, right? Because they, it's more expensive. It's a next, it's a next tier up in efficiency, so it, obviously it's going to cost more, and they have to pass on those costs. Um, they, there's other ways they could shave costs elsewhere. They just choose not to. In my opinion, this is Kevin talking. Uh, but I just wanted to to kind of throw out an idea for you. When I grew up in California, in Los Angeles, a small town south of Los Angeles, um, this was my reality. 
this was the, and it was actually, I've seen vintage photos that are a lot worse than this. This is the smog, probably in the 70s. On an average day, this is nothing extreme. I've seen stuff way worse than this. Um, and it was because of the growth of Los Angeles County and the, and the basin there and just explosion of growth and the amount of cars. It didn't have a whole lot to do with industry, ironically. It was just the amount of cars on a freeway. Uh, producing this smog, and then the basin itself where L.A. sits kind of traps that smog. It has nowhere to go. It just gets pushed up against the the mountains behind it, and, the, you know, it just gets trapped there, so we're all suffering. And it's interesting. I've seen people with gas masks on in, in vintage photos from the 30s and the 40s with the same problem. You would think that the pollution wasn't so bad because of the, the car population, but... Uh, this was my reality, right? So then they developed the Southern California Air Quality Management District to tackle the issue. I go to visit LA now every so often, and this is my new view. Because of the rules and the regulations, the whole county, the whole Southern California benefited. And ironically, most of California now uses the Southern California Air Quality Management District rules to regulate pollution and smog in their cities. My, my point is, it might seem overreaching, big brother-ish to have these kind of rules set in place, but if the benefit to, to everyone is this, uh, I'm all for it. And I don't know where you stand, if you would rather sit in the other photo with your mask on, uh, but I would prefer the oversight. Sorry. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Okay. Bids, estimates, and proposals. Now, let's say you're just starting out and you and you have a a master bathroom that you want to uh, remodel. It's you know it's built in the '70s. Got all kinds of antique, you know that kind of vintage stuff that you sick of looking at. Doesn't serve your needs, etc. What you get on the phone with a few people that you've uh, talked to and they're willing to come out, what are you asking them for? Right? What words are you going to use? What are you going to tell them uh, that you want from them? Right? So, here's a few definitions of what you should uh, kind of embed and, and get into your subconscious. The bid comes after the proposal, which comes after the estimate. And this is kind of how I did it. And not everybody works the same or uses the same terminology, but typically the first interface with your potential contractor is going to be an estimate. They might call it a bid. Uh, in the commercial world, it is called a bid. It's an open bid situation. An estimate is used mostly for remodelers and small projects where you can kind of look at it very quickly, get an idea of what they want, and based on your previous histories and what you've done in the past and the materials and products that you've used, I estimate it's going to be this. So it's a rough calculation of the project. And it could be enough to give you a starting point, a, a, a first uh, estimate that you can use to measure with other ones, right? Because chances are they're not going to go into the depth of producing a proposal or a bid 
or anything above an estimate until you agree to work with them. And people will say, well, why is that? Why, why don't they get more detail? Well, if you think about the complexity of preparing to me a proposal, I have to get down to the nitty gritty. I gotta know what's in the walls. I gotta know what your direction is. I gotta know what tub you selected, what tile you selected, what the pattern of the tile is, where is the tile? You know, there's all kinds of things that I need to kind of get through in order to create my proposal to hand to you to give a, get a, a green light or a red light. I don't want to go through all that not knowing if we're going to go forward. So there's, there's this weird thing that happens between that initial estimate and, okay, let's, let's keep dating, let's go forward to the next step, right? So it goes from estimate to proposal. And then on the proposal, hopefully by this time you've, you've You've whittled it down to one uh, contractor that you would like to work with. And we'll talk about that in another section. But let's say you've gone through five different people. You know, two gave you a really bad vibe. One maybe didn't know what they were doing. So you have these two kind of middle estimates you're comfortable with. They're very close. Same, same scope of work, loosely defined. So now you, you kind of say, I like, I like Jane more than I like John. So let's go with Jane. Okay, Jane, we're ready to go forward. Let's let's get a more detailed proposal. So Jane might have, depending upon her business model, they might charge you for that proposal creation, which is, in my opinion, worth every penny. You've already kind of chosen Jane based on your interviews and your, your research and the references that you've heard and talked to. You really want to work with Jane. So whatever she's telling you, you've already, you should trust her at this point is what I'm kind of getting at is, all right, Jane, I need to get them, I'm going to pay for your time, let's develop the proposal. So now we start working on, all right, our budget's 100K, you came in at 120. We got to find 20K somewhere. That's where that, that uh, conversation comes in and how you fine tune your budget is with the contractor that's actually going to be doing the work or at least be in charge of doing the work because they might need to go back round two and say, hey, plumber, now they're doing uh, just a tub instead of a tub shower. I need a new price for that. So then it's a little bit of back and forth. So you want to pay them for their time so that you can sharpen that pencil and get your budget as dialed in as you can. Okay, That's the whole objective of this first initial paperwork stage is getting from a preliminary estimate with with semi-clear scope, it doesn't have to be every fixture defined, to the proposal stage which helps clear up the gray areas and define scope a little bit more clearly. Uh, and then from that you get into a formal contract of which the uh, proposal or the bid is usually just attached to, right? All right, so it goes from estimate. Then you start talking about refining the numbers, right? Refining the uh, the project scope. So once the estimate uh, is created and you say, yeah, I really want to work with you, let's go to the next phase. The next phase is the proposal, and, and he or she will really get down and, and start to maybe... Uh, choose this plumber over this plumber or this roofer over that roofer because of the way the project is going. Maybe it's the product that's being installed 
dictates that I use this plumber instead of this one. Oh, but this one's not available. Now I got to go do a little bit of shopping. So there's some work that has to be done on that initial uh, proposal kind of correction phase. Uh, is it correct? Does it have everything you want in it? Does it have... Because this is kind of just before it turns into a contract, and this is kind of the, the, the tail end of this module, so I, we need to get this clear. Your, your goal is to... Let's start at the beginning of the module. Your goal is to, to, to know what you want, what your, your end game is, right? Say it's the kitchen remodel. You know how it wants to look, how you want it to look. You know what the storage is and what the colors, etc. You kind of have that loosely defined in your head. Then you have to get real about pricing and how much things cost so that your budget is uh, based in reality and not fantasy, right? We've talked about that difference of staying in reality land. Okay, we, now we've narrowed it down and we tightened up our belt a little bit. We went from that cabinet line to this cabinet line. We went from, you know, Italian marble flown in from wherever to a local tile guy that's going to do a great job. That's fine. So then we get our estimates, we call up the people, we get estimates. Some are written in crayon and on the back of a napkin, and some are very professional, but they take too long to communicate. So there's this, this weird dating period where you're, you're, you're holding hands with a few contractors at this point because you're trying to grasp, okay, who, who do I want to go on this journey with? And that helps you get to the next phase. Once you've decided on who that person is, then you need to sit down again, go to their office, what have you, and say, okay, let's take it to the next level. What does that look like? And you really start defining the scope of the project. Materials, uh, what your objectives are, what the, what the site prep is, and what that looks like. Uh, what's, the, what's the characteristics of your family? You know, what, what do they do on a daily basis? So that all of this can be incorporated into the content. Because now they're really getting a good definition of who you guys are as a family and the project that they're about to embark on with you. So they want to know as much to, you know, about the project as you do. So that all comes into play in this project proposal because once you clearly define and get as much detail as you can, you, your, your schedule gets more accurate. You know, it gets really loose at the front end where you just kind of, ah, oh, it's a, maybe a month project. And then you get you start talking details. Well, okay, now it's six weeks. Okay, more details. Well, okay, now it's seven weeks. So it gets clearer. It's like focusing a camera, right? The the, the image gets clearer as as you de, as you define it better, as you get more clear about your objectives and the materials and the products that you're going to use and where you're going to get them, etc. So that's your goal to in this module is to get to this proposal state where you and the contractor are completely clear about what's ahead, okay? This is the, the junction where you can say yes or no. You, you've sharpened the pencil, you, you've used up all the calculator power you can, you've, you've trimmed costs where you can, and, and kept your, your, your priorities where, where they needed to be with systems that are more efficient, etc. And now you've become now you have established the project proposal, the scope of work is what we would call it. Uh, and that come that just gets attached to the contract, which has all the legalese of how the, the relationship works. The proposal or the addendum that includes what that scope of work is, is what defines what the project is going to do, 
how we're going to do it or what's involved, et cetera. It, it's more clearly defined. So there's kind of two parts of that contract, and that's this is right up to that point. Okay, so I hope that's clear, everybody. Uh, I know we talked about a lot of stuff here, but I want to make sure that this is your chance to really make or break the project. You can either make it very painful by not doing some of this stuff and just jumping into the deep end of the pool and going forward and living with the consequences. Or you can kind of t slow down and take these steps and make sure you do your contingency set aside. Make sure you have your options and your alternatives identified. It could even include other contractors, other tradespeople. Make sure that you have uh, your priorities and your intentions established as far as sustainable materials or energy efficient materials and products uh, so that everybody knows that that's your, that's your direction. That's what you want to include or not include. Uh, and then this last part about the beginnings of the paperwork. The initial estimate, then the, the proposal, the fine-tuning of the proposal, which turns into the contract. But it's that initial estimate where you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn about the receptivity of the company, which is a big indicator of how they're going to treat you from then on, uh, how communicative, communicative they are, how well they communicate with you, and what that looks like and what their preferred communication method is. You might be a texter and they might be snail mail. That would be an issue. Uh, who who are they going to have on their team? You know, you, you might not get to that point yet, but you'll start to get a feel of who they are, how they operate, how they treat people, how they treat their, you know, pr projects, etc. So that initial estimate is that first it's exactly like that first date, right? When you meet somebody for the first time, it's like they've either captivated you or they're just, you're a little bit suspect or suspicious or you're, you're ready to engage already. You just have that good feeling about them. And that's kind of how this is too in this estimating phase. But also just as a warning, the estimator that comes out to visit with you and talk with you and, and be nice with you and friendly and all that might not be the company owner it might not even be an employee of the owner it might be just a subcontracted home improvement salesperson and that does exist those people are certified to do that because they're good salespeople. so you have to kind of find out in your research and how you're talking to people when you're doing the estimating phase is you know what you know who are you what's the involvement all that because it does give you an indication of and it may not give you an indication, but sometimes it could give you an indication of how the company operates. Maybe the, the owner is just doesn't, is too busy or doesn't like to talk to people or doesn't like people. You'd, you'd kind of want to know that, right? Because as soon as you go into the proposal and definitely in the contract phase, uh, now you're kind of married. Now you kind of have to walk down the aisle and, and spend a few months together or however long the project is because you, you've agreed upon that. You, your contract signature says that. So know who you're going to get married to before you get married. That's what this section's all about. All right. Hope that helped, everybody. This is all your uh, budget and cost section here. So keep it under control. Keep your sights focused. All right. Thank you, and we'll see you in the next module, everybody. Take care. See ya.